This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Our existence as living creatures depends on our tendency to heal. It is one of the most vital aspects of who we are. Despite that, most of us are not aware of it, not even to mention appreciate it. As a result, we rely on medicine to treat and cure our illnesses. The power of medicine can accomplish many miracles. Without it, I would be dead. However, medicine cannot heal us. The reason we heal is because we have a tendency to do so. And by appreciating this process, often its effects can be amplified. Ed. Valeria interviews Ed Cohen. He is the author of On Learning to Heal, or What Medicine Doesn't Know, as well as A Body Worth Defending, Immunity, Biopolitics, and the Apotheosis of the Modern Body. He is professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Rutgers University and hosts a therapeutic practice for those interested in healing, often with chronic and life-threatening illnesses. Meet Ed at healingcouncil.com. Here's the interview with Ed Cohen. In your own words, who is Ed Cohen? Well, Valeria, the first thing I'd like (laughs) to say, I guess, is that I'm a teacher. And I'm a teacher because I love to learn. Mm -hmm. And once I learn things, I love to share them. So it's (laughs) sort of made sense for me (laughs) to become a teacher. Um, I'm also a scholar. Uh, I've been a professor at Rutgers University for the last 35 years. I have a PhD from Stanford University in modern thought, and I also have degrees in literature and mathematics. Um, I guess I, I'm a writer. I've written mm. a few books. Yes. Um, and my current book is called On Learning to Heal or What Medicine Doesn't Know, and it's just come out from Duke University Press. Uh, I'm also a counselor. I work with uh, people who are interested in healing often people with chronic or life-threatening illnesses. Um, and the, uh, my practice is called Healing Council, and you can find it at healingcouncil.com. Um, I guess, you know, I would say I'm also a friend. Um, I really believe that, you know, connection is one of the most vital things about being alive, and, and friendship just reminds us that we're connected to others. And I guess the last thing I want people to know is that I'm a gardener. Hi. Ah, yes. um, <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, and I'm a gardener because I love growing things <laughs> and you know, I love things that grow. So, you know, I'm I'm all in favor of flourishing. That's my uh, my raison d'etre. Do you also have had any interest in spirituality? 
throughout your life or recently? Yes, well, so that's an interesting question uh, because, you know, different people mean different things by the word spirituality. Yes. Um, and, you know, I was raised like in a family of dogmatic atheists. My mother was a communist. My father was a physical chemist and matter was all that mattered. And um, I then in the course of my life, I, I have a, a chronic illness called Crohn's disease, which uh, I'm now celebrating my 50th anniversary. It's my golden anniversary. And when about 10 years into that, I almost died. I had a near death out of body experience. And but then I was very lucky. I was in uh, Stanford Ho University Hospital, which is, you know, one of the major medical centers in the world. And they and they saved my life. And when I was then uh, recovering and I had a long recovery, I kind of spontaneously uh, started going into trances, which, you know, nothing in my life had ever prepared me for that. That was you know, the opposite of when I had grown up to believe. And uh, and it wasn't at the time I didn't think of it as anything spiritual. I just thought of it as pain management. Like I could go into this place where there was a lot of light, you know, I'd be listening to music and I would go in and I could take the light and just wrap it around the parts of my intestines part. I had to have parts of my intestines removed and parts of my liver removed. And, you know, and I was just like comforting myself, you know, and then I would just fall into this incredibly, uh, I, I didn't even have to describe it, uh, spacious, peaceful, light filled, you know, not the hospital. Like, right. let's, <laughs> yes, not the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I didn't really think anything about it. I mean, at first it, freak the doctors and nurses out because they'd come into my room and try to get my attention and I was out of it. But, uh, but then they figured out if they turned off the music, I'd come out of it then. And then when I left the hospital, I had an interview with my surgeon and he said this thing to me that, you know, just really rocked my world. Uh, he said, you were the sickest person I've operated on in five years who is still alive. So first of all, that freaked me out because even though I'd had this kind of out-of-body experience, I really, you know, I was 23. I didn't really think I was dying. And But then he said something that even was more uh, startling, which he said, and I don't know how you got better so quickly. And that really just opened a whole world to me. Uh, I mean, it took a while but to you know, integrate that and to kind of, but, you know, I realized, wow, there's something more, to me than I know, you know, that there's some, like the way I put it in my book, I have a chapter that's called, we're more intelligent than we know. Right. Knowing is part of who we are, but our, but intelligence is vast. Mm -hmm. So spirituality, you know, to me, I have a, you know, my own way of thinking about it, but it's more in relationship to just that understanding we're more than we know, right? Mm -hmm. There is some, intelligence that's not knowable by us that we can call you know god or spirit or atman or you know buddha or whatever you want you know i mean many different traditions you know name it or try to grasp it in different ways but ultimately i think what almost all traditions would agree on is 
what makes spirit or whatever you want to call it. Mm. What it is, is actually you can't really grasp it. It's beyond our grasp and yet it's there. So, um, so yes, that, that would be my version of spirituality. And I mean, in that sense, uh, yeah, I'm definitely very spiritual these days. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it very much sounds like it. Um, I love the way you talked about that experience. And have you, oh, of course, um, that's obvious question about um, when the doctor said, I don't know how you got back so quickly. Mm. And I know you have done a lot of reflection and uh, studies on that. And your book mentioned talks about healing being this, you call the, um, is that a natural tendency? Mm -hmm. Or right, something that just, it's self-healing, basically. We have that tendency to heal naturally. And then there's something else that when you say there's much more than what we know, Mm-hmm. Life is a lot more than knowledge or what we can know. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the questions that really kind of stopped me into for a while was, it's a philosophical, religious, spiritual question. What is that with which everything is known? It's almost implying that everything that we know, it's knowable through something. And that's what we call awareness, consciousness. Mm-hmm. So, do you actually have had some experiences with that realm of consciousness and awareness in a sense of a, not an experience because it's not an experience, but just become aware of awareness? Uh, yes, I think I understand what you're saying uh, or asking. Um, so I would say I feel, yes, that I've had many experiences of like that and it's partly in relationship to the many different practices that I have been just very lucky to find amazing teachers in my life. I mean, that's one of the things that happened, you know, after I was so sick and after I had this kind of the doctor said, I don't know how you got better so quickly. <clears throat> I, you know, I had a realization that, OK, uh, something happened and also, you know, that I could, you know, continue to keep going through this cycle of being very ill and, you know, having acute episodes, or I could learn to live in new ways. And the, really, when I made that, like, intentional, like, I was like, no, I think I'm going to learn new ways to live. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, and I love to learn. So the minute that I did that, it was sort of amazing, like all of these teachers who I never would have actually been interested in or called to, you know, began appearing in my life that and I've had so many um, in my life. I mean, that's one of the things about, you know, being a teacher is in order to be a teacher, you have to have had teachers. Yes, <laughs> true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. And, uh, so in the different practices that I've done, I'll, I'll just name, you know, the one that's been most important for me. Um, my teachers uh, were Emily Conrad and, and Susan Harper, who developed a practice called Continuum uh, Movement. And it's a movement meditation breath uh, practice that takes place in a kind of um, uh, a container with other people. And by creating these kinds of, um, I mean, laboratories for consciousness in a way, I mean, and creating a space in which 
the value of that exploration is supported and encouraged as, you know, opposed to the culture of, uh, of capitalism, which is all about productivity and profit and, you know, results and that, you know, by creating a, a, a vessel within which, you know, creative exploration and, and curiosity, curiosity, you know, are nurtured and fostered that the capacity to uh, delve into, dive into um, that more expansive sense of, you know, almost like not, I mean, in Buddhism, it would be not self, right? That, you know, but, the, the, you know, there are very practical ways of cultivating that, you know, it doesn't always work, but, you know, yes. but, <laughs> but, uh, but that's why it's a practice, right? Mm, you yeah. to keep practicing it, you know, and <laughs> get a little better at it. Um, but yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, that sense of that there's a horizon, you know, within which uh, all knowing arises temporarily in some form or another um, and then falls away. Um, but, you know, there's some thing that holds that, um, you know, I mean, we could call it the universe. <laughs> Let's face it, we are. We're in a big, uh, you know, we're, we're in a, a big mesh. We're in a big container, you know, the, on our little planet here, you know, the third rock from the sun, um, you know. And so, so, you know, kind of being able to try to expand or, 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 yeah. I mean, we are already expanded. I mean, the problem is we we are is that we are always already in that state. It's just that we have like blinders on, you know, that you know that encourage us to focus in particular ways, which of course is necessary. Yeah. Right. In order to go on living. Right. Um. You know, but it's not everything. Hmm. Um. Yeah. You know, that's one of the the things that I have. That started, of course, I started with trauma first. Suffering, it's such a, a great catalyst uh -huh. for going deeper into the um, what existence is or what to exist means. I remember kind of uh, being, let's say, the mind shifting and open so much uh -huh. more when you start kind of see things that we usually kind of take almost like, um, not for granted, but we it's knowledge that, has been passed on that we believe in it. It's almost becomes a, mm -hmm. we, we talk about religion, but it becomes a, a faith-based type of thing. Like um, uh -huh. the sun, uh -huh. the sunset, you see so many people, when, you know, including myself, oh, you're the sunset. We know it's, I mean, most of us should know that the sun is not moving. We are moving. <laughs> so the sun's not going down. <laughs> the sun's not setting. <laughs> but it, it's interesting because, and I wonder if we, if it actually was the opposite, if the sun was actually moving and not the earth, then would that feel differently? Would we experience oh, that differently? Oh, yeah. Well, that, I mean, until until the heliocentric theory of the sun, you know, let's just say Galileo, uh, that is how people by and large experience the world that you know, the, the sun was moving and the earth was stationary. I mean, that, that was the perception. 
Uh, and uh, no, no, it's so funny that you use that example because when I was in sixth grade, I had a huge fight with my teacher uh, about this exact thing about does the sun rise and set? And, and he was like, he yeah, he was like the sunrise and, and I like, no no <laughs> see <laughs> no, the Earth is turning yes wow <laughs> which, I mean that's which is what Galileo said at the beginning of the 17th century and yes absolutely people's perception of of what of you know our place in the world you know is totally framed by the, the phrase I would use is things that seem self evident <laughs> that it's not that taken for granted it's like they they seem so certain that they just present themselves as, as if that's just the way it is. And, you know, and one of the things that, you know, is super wonderful about the kinds of beings that human beings are is that we know that through the course of our very short history, that what has seemed self-evident has changed really frequently and and right now it's changing hugely in every part of the world. I mean, you know, not just, you know, with digital technologies and, you know, different kinds of, you know, genetic alterations or whatever, but also like in terms of the biosphere, like, you know, I mean, when I grew up, you know, global warming was not a major concern. You know, nuclear war was a major concern, but not, you know, and now, I mean, you know, I teach young people and, you know, in the way that we were terrified by like the possibility of a nuclear war, they're like terrified by, you know, the, the collapse of, you know, the global ecosystems. So, you know, what, what counts as important, the horizon within which we make meaning, I mean, it changes constantly, constantly. And, and, you know, hopefully that's a positive thing insofar as, you know, what we can learn you know, is to think in ways that are more healing for, for all concerned, for not just for human beings, for, but for, you know, in, in a Buddhist, Buddhism, when they would say for all sentient beings, I mean, I, you know, but, you know, but certainly, you know, for, you know, other living beings like the, of which we are part, you know, we're part of that world. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, it is amazing in my lifetime, like when I think, Things that used to, you know, were self-evident, like that, you know, we were bounded, you know, individual organisms, you know, and that we live within like a skin spacesuit. And and now everybody's like, oh, no, but we have, you know, uh, um, you know, we have microbiota in our guts and in our, you know, in our skin. And there's more bacterial and viral DNA in us than there is human DNA. And I was like, you know, 50 years ago, that would have, you've been like, okay, you're on LSD. <laughs> yes. <and> right. <laughs> you're completely <laughs> like, now it's like, no, take your probiotics. Yes. You know, yes. <laughs> drink your kombucha. Mm, my time about I love kombucha. Yeah. You mentioned, you just mentioned, right. Yeah. It surprised me that, most, um, I mean, human beings around me, some of my family members, they seem not to have changed, like their perceptions of life, of themselves. It's uh-huh. the same. I talked to them like 10 years ago, and then we have the same conversation. I have this podcast because I can't really have a conversation with them. And that really surprised me, you know, Ed, that 
how come? <laughs> you know, there's a constant <laughs> change. Even if we are not exposed to, you know, all the new scientific discoveries or the TV, television news and all that, because I'm not really, I don't follow any of that. But if we study mm. ourselves, we see that mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. there's so much more than what I used to believe or to know. So mm. it's the self-knowledge. And you do mention that too. I mean, you mentioned that a lot, self-knowledge. But let me go back to, you mentioned healing and the, the health issues that you had and while you went through almost death because of it. So talk to me about healing from the perspective of self-healing and modern medicine. So one of the things that I think it's important for us to understand is that healing is a natural tendency that is characteristic of all living beings. So when biologists describe, you know, what a living organism is, it has a certain set of characteristics. One, all organisms have to be bounded. Um, Two, that boundary has to be permeable. So we have to be able to take in nutrients and, and let out toxins. Three, organisms have to reproduce themselves through time. And four, all organisms have to have a reparative capacity. Uh, From the first cell that ever existed to now, to all of the organisms, those are just underlying characteristics that allow us to go on living. I mean, that's basic. So, you know, the way that I think about healing, especially, you know, in terms of human beings, you know, I I say I make it very general. so I say, you know, to my mind, uh, healing is the vital capacity that we have as living organisms to enhance the quality of our lives in the context in which we live. Right? That that one of the things that you know, living beings, you know, um, living beings are never isolated. Living beings are always connected. That's the permeable boundary part. You know, so, uh, you know, so insofar as we are in contexts that we're not necessarily in control of, I mean, many of us live in toxic environments, literally toxic, you know, or emotionally toxic, right? Um, Or we live in environments that, you know, ask us to, uh, you know, to, to live in states of anxiety or stress or you know, and, but, you know, I feel like even in those contexts that there is some tendency that if, if it's, first of all, desired, like when you were talking about your relatives, it's like that, that you need to be able to desire that and you need to value it. Those are like, to me, the, the beginning, like that's the impulse, you know, and that, and then if you begin to desire and to value healing, then I feel like that's why, you know, that one, that's the beginning of the possibility of learning to heal that, you know, our cultures, you know, in general, not, that's not true. Like in, in many indigenous cultures, healing is a, a primary value, right? I mean, you know, healing understood, you know, as like the integrated relationship of the organisms and the environment, right? That, you know, many, uh, you know, indigenous peoples, you know, understand that they are not disconnected from 
the planet, the cosmos, and that maintaining a positive balance, you know, that, you know, is, is essential to not just, you know, the going on living of their group, but, but the collective life field within which a group of people lives. So, um, so to me, healing, you know, represents uh, um, something that's important to affirm and that and that we do it all the time. That's the thing is like everybody who, you know, is listening to this insofar as they're alive, which I assume if they're listening to this, they are alive, that, <laughs> that we are alive because we heal like we have healed many, many times. We heal constantly, you know. It's, you know, we cut our fingers, we get a cold, we, you know, one of the things that I say, you know, about, you know, like, for example, about COVID, which, you know, I would have hoped, you know, that COVID would have made it more self-evident to many more people that healing is an essential value, although unfortunately it seems not to. But, you know, one of the things I try to point out to people is that, you know, no matter how much support and encouragement medicine could provide to people who were diagnosed with COVID, you know, whether that's, you know, just, you know, simple, you know, uh, remedies to, you know, the antivirals to like people who are on life support, for example. I mean, those are all supportive techniques. If people recovered from that illness, it's because they have an intrinsic capacity to heal. Every single person who recovered from COVID, there is nothing that medicine could do to heal you. You healed yourself, albeit with support. And that's the thing is healing requires a lot of support and encouragement. It, it requires a lot of energy. I mean, if you just think of it at the level of the organism, you know, why, why do we sleep so much when we're sick? Because that transformational process is an energetic process. I mean, one of the things that I always try to, to emphasize to people, you know, in terms of things like that we were talking about that seem self-evident to us, right? So one of the things that our, my, you know, the culture that I live in anyway takes for granted is the idea of the body. Like to be a person means to have a body. And I'm like, okay, what is this? What is this body thing, right? First of all, like who who is the I that has the body? Like who? I, that, that's already a question. But if you think about it really empirically, like from a scientific point of view, um, what we call the body might be better understood as transformations in matter energy that are localized in space time. So a better way of thinking about who we are as living organisms is we're events. We're, we are events that arise within a life context and we participate in different ways with that. And we, and what we can do because we are creative beings, that is part of what our evolutionary trajectory has gifted us is the capacity to live otherwise, that's what we call creativity, that, uh, you know, that we, if we choose, can create, you know, new ways of coexisting, new modes of participation, you know, with the world that support and encourage values that we would like there to be more of in the world. And right now I'm like, you know, at every level, 
you know, politically, ethically, spiritually, you know, met, uh, you know, by, you know, geospherically. I mean, I just think, you know, healing, healing, it would be good if we, if that was a, a more appreciated value. <laughs> Which sounds very natural, almost like common sense. Well, uh, yeah, I think so. Healing, health. <laughs> But yes, as you probably have heard, common sense is not is not as common <laughs> as we would love it to be. <laughs> no, not at all. And you know, when you talk about these um, communities working together to heal, to survive in general, you know, aspects, mm. then mm. you make me think about the goal of spirituality. It's exactly mm. that. Mm-hmm. Once we discover that everything's connected, mm-hmm. we start seeing our essence everywhere. And everything, in everyone, in everything. So mm. from that, it's so much easier for the body-mind complex that's usually very complicated and conditioned to kind of follow that, mm-hmm. follow that knowledge. It is knowledge. When I think about knowledge, I think about ignorance. So it's almost mm. like the dispel of ignorance. So now I'm mm-hmm. not ignorant anymore about who I am. I'm connected to everything. So why wouldn't I be kind and loving towards mm. everything and everyone. Mm. It's for me that's really the true value of of spirituality mm. which really feels like and I would say it is like the foundation of ethics and morality. Mm-hmm. It would work with everything. Even I don't know scientists like you who you are a scientist so many of them scientists of the minds all kinds of scientists but they're we are still human beings. Mm-hmm. We still have a human life. So mm-hmm. even though we don't kind of um, see reality or the nature of reality the same way, but it goes back to that. It really does, Ed. So I love the way you bring that back, you know, healing and communities and coming together and connectivity. That really resonates true. Mm. And of course, I hear that from so many other people and scientists that I interview. We agree. We definitely agree on that, and which is wonderful because that's the foundation anyway. If we can agree on something that's fundamental, then we can kind of enhance and help this reality to become more peaceful mm. and healthy. So another question I have for you is about, yeah, that one, that it's a fundamental question too, the difference of the relationship between learning and healing. You probably mm. have already talked about that, but please elaborate a little bit more. Sure, of course. Well, I mean, just like following on what you were saying, uh, the question of, well, this seems like it should be common sense, but why don't we know this, right? And I think that You know, that's the beginning of an inquiry. It's the beginning of learning to ask the question, well, what is it that we don't know or we can't know that, you know, uh, frames what we think we do know? Like, why why do we think the world is this way? Like, to go back to what we were saying at the beginning, like, why for so long did people think that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun went around the earth? You know, well, there are very good reasons. It had to do with Christianity. Uh, (laughs) And before that it had to do with like, you know, the limits of technologies to be, you know, understand. And I mean, there are, there, there are explicable reasons why things that now seem self-evident came to seem unquestionable 
in the times that they did, but it may no longer be the case and it, they may no longer seem as necessary as they did. So, you know, for me, like learning, I mean, learning is, you know, I guess my trajectory through life. I mean, I kind of believe, I suppose, you know, what are we doing in this life for me? It's, you know, I ask the question, you know, like I say, uh, what is the healing that birth took me for in this life? Like that, that's, you know, I, that's an ethic. That's like, that's an orientation that I have. And it's similar, you know, and learning is part of that. It's like, what do I need to learn in order to manifest the healing that birth took me for in this life? And, you know, and the thing about healing is that while it's a natural tendency, like while all organisms tend, there's no necessity to healing. That is, it isn't given, it isn't written in stone that you will heal. Obviously not. We all die. That's the other part of it, right? right. So, you know, but... But insofar as while we are still alive, that we um, become more capable of supporting and encouraging this process of enhancing the quality of our lives, right, that we have to learn to do that. And and what I always like to say, too, is like healing never takes place the same way twice. Right. It's like, you know, at one moment. Just like practically at one moment, you may have learned a technique or a breath work or whatever, you know, like there's a million things and it was really transformational and great, you know, and then, you know, like a year later, it's like, ooh, no, it's not working anymore. Or it's not what it was, you know, and it's like the idea is like we keep changing. That's why learning is ongoing. You've never there's always more to learn, you know, and so to me, you know, learning is a, an essential part of healing and that's why. You know, I call my book uh, on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know, because I think at least in Western cultures that, you know, have these very, you know, bioscientifically underwritten forms of medical practice, that medical knowledge comes to seem as if it's that self-evident thing, right? As if, you know, the doc, I mean, literally we approach a doctor, like when we go to the doctor, which I know I go to the doctor, we all go, you know, I mean, I'm lucky. I have very good health insurance and, you know, I'm capable of going to good doctors and, you know, but when I go to a doctor, I have a desire. I have a desire that they know something about what's happening to me that I don't know. Right. And so, so my assumption is they're supposed to know. And that, you know, certainly puts a lot of pressure on them because they're sitting there going, I'm supposed to know. What if I don't know? I can't tell them. I don't know. That's going to really, if the doctor tells you, you know, when you go to a doctor and they say to you, I don't know, that's generally not a good thing. <laughs> right. Right. Not the expected for sure. Yeah. But, uh, But no doctor I ever went to, and I've been to many, many doctors. I mean, I've had Crohn's disease for 50 years. I've been to a lot of doctors. No doctor has ever suggested to me anything either about learning or about healing. I um, I mean, I know there are very rare and special, special doctors. I mean, and I've been very lucky because I have had them and they have been my among my greatest teachers who do understand about learning and healing. But like my like for my one of my root teachers is a, a person named Rachel Remen, who uh, herself is a, a doctor. She was a pediatric endocrinologist at Stanford University. She was educated, you know, at Columbia University. She did her residency at Sloan Kettering. 
Um, and she also has Crohn's disease. And at a certain point, the tension between being a doctor and being someone with a very acute illness, you know, the tension between those became really great. And she had to change her practice. She had to learn a new way of being for herself and for other people. And she was the first doctor I ever went to who mentioned the word healing to me and suggested to me that healing might entail learning to live otherwise, that it might be the case that what I was suffering from was not just uh, some kind of cellular pathology, um, <clears throat> but that I was actually suffering from, uh, in, you know, as well living in a container that was too small to make sense of my experience. And that, you know, and that there's, there's more, there was more to me than I knew. Um, and that, that, that fundamentally changed my life. I mean, that was an intervention that I am forever grateful to her for. I mean, she is an amazing healer. I mean, for your listeners, I mean, I highly recommend checking out her books. Uh, Rachel Remen, <clears throat> she wrote Kitchen Table Wisdom and Blessings My Grandfather Gave Me. They are amazing books, and she is an amazing bodhisattva. And But that's the thing. It's like once you begin to allow yourself to desire to learn, teachers oftentimes become available. And they're not available until we desire to learn. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's like they could be right in your face and you wouldn't know. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Everything you say just makes so much sense to me uh, when it comes to healing and learning. And then the piece of tapping into this unlimited, infinite part of us that expanded, that's already here. That really yeah, it speaks to the heart like, yes, you know, there's a huge yes kind of jumping out of me. Mm. And uh, that's what comes to mind when I think about healing in terms of your entire life. It's not just healing the headache mm -hmm. or healing whatever's happening, the symptoms, but just what's my life? What is this all about in a sense of individuality? Like what is to be expressed here? And I often think about flowers, and that's funny that mm -hmm. you have a garden, <laughs> and how beautiful flowers are, and they're not thinking their way through it. I know there's a the, you know, the primordial uh, intelligence, of course, it's there, mm. but it's so effortless, you know, the way a flower expresses its beauty. And it just stays there, flourishes, and of course, and dies, but it expresses its beauty first. And I wonder if all of us human beings can get to that point one day that we can kind of see, do this work of healing from the way you speak of, from those lens which is uh, self-learning. I have always go to the, those fundamentals because for me has been my own experience of learning about the self mm. to kind of uh, uncover all the other learnings. <laughs> so self-learning, self-knowledge, and then that leads to self-healing at all levels, the, the mm. psyche, the, everything, the body and mind. So yeah, it really, really resonates true to me. Thank you so much, Ed. Again, for oh. me, open to life. Oh, I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yes, I can hear in your <laughs> voice. <laughs> so in your book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know, did you have an intention? Did you set an intention when you wrote the book? 
Yes. Well, the so the book is um, basically uses my learning curve uh, about healing. So it tells the story uh, of my um, journey from being a 13 year old and being really, really acutely ill uh, to spending 10 years in adolescence on very high doses of prednisone um, and being incontinent. And I, I now refer to this as my adolescence on steroids. Yes, uh, yes. And, <laughs> you know, to until my early 20s when I had this near-death experience and then had this kind of transformational awareness that I needed to to learn how to heal. And then spent I've spent the last 40 years refining that. I mean, for initially it was a desire and then it became a practice and then, you know, I become more refined. And now, you know, as I said at the very beginning, you know, I'm a teacher. So, you know, once I learn something, I love to share it with other people. Um, so the book really is, uh, you know, uh, uh, tries to sketch the arc of my own personal journey, but then also to go back to what you were saying before, it tries to explain why didn't I know this to begin with? Like what were the things that I didn't know? And in part, I didn't know because I was so dependent on medicine. And when we are treated medically, it's not just that we receive, you know, medications or we receive surgeries or we, we also receive ways of making sense of our experience. You know, every time we accept a treatment, we also implicitly accept the uh, the explanations that underwrite those treatments. And in North America, you know, with the insurance industry, I mean it literally like they are underwritten, you know, by a huge in pharmaceutical industry, you know, medical industrial complex like <clears throat> that there's big investments in our understanding our own experience as living organisms in certain ways. And so, you know, so the book is partly about my unlearning that or, you know, and my process because I'm a philosopher and a historian is to think historically, well, well, why did this thing that no longer makes sense to me, why did it come to seem as if it made sense in the first place? And then what might some other ways of thinking about that experience be that might allow me and other people to have more access to other resources that will support and encourage healing? I'm never against medicine, mm, right? I, because like, I mean, honestly, yeah. I would be dead several times over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You, yes. I'm but at the same time, you know, there, there are some, you know, real limits, you know, like, I mean, just like think about hospitals. Yes. Like, if, I mean, I spent a lot of time in hospital, but um, hospitals are not places to heal. They're really good if you're acutely sick. Yes, right. Like if I you're agree. acute, go to the hospital. Yes. But yeah. if you're trying to heal, like, for, I mean, I work with a lot of, in my counseling practice, I work with a lot of people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses, but especially chronic illnesses, medicine is not good with that, mm. right? That's not 
you know, uh, especially <clears throat> autoimmune illnesses, which, you know, Crohn's disease is an autoimmune illness. There's so many autoimmune illnesses now. Yeah. I mean, medicine literally does not know why they exist. It does not know how to, there's no cure. There are no cures. Um, what they can do is they can suppress your immune system, which has, of course, many side effects. Uh, and, you know, which there's, you know, maybe better than the symptoms that you were having before. I'm not, you know, saying that don't take the medications, but, but to understand that, that there's more to healing than medicine knows. And, you know, we invest so much in medicine. We desire, I mean, as I was saying before, we desire it. We long for someone to tell us what to do. And, you know, and in doing that, we give up our own, agency our own or let's put it this way it's like we participate in our own process of illness in a diminished way when we accord that much authority to other people whatever for what however their expertise is to tell us how we should be Uh and what we should do um so the book is really a um it's partly a memoir it's partly a philosophical reflection on the assumptions that are embedded in the medical system. It's partly about history of medicine, but it's also about the other techniques that I've learned uh, in the course of my healing journey um, that have been really powerful for me. And, and in an attempt to use those to then suggest other ways of thinking about what it means, literally not just to, about health and illness, but what it means to be alive, like what it means to be a living being. Right. And you know, can we expand the context, you know, within which we imagine ourselves? I mean, one of the main things that I try to to help people with, uh, you know, both in my writing and in, in my counseling is to understand our imaginations are incredibly powerful resources for healing. And one of the things that we learn from medicine is to discount that, right? We, you know, we're focused, you know, on trying to find determinate causes, you know, which are great if they're, if they're available, but a lot of times they're not. And, you know, so, you know, I'm really, the book is really about how trying to help us to imagine how we could possibly live otherwise. So that's why it's called on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know. It's not disrespecting what medicine does know. It's pointing out, that there are limits to that knowing and that yes. Yes. we can, and we can learn new things. That's, that's the great thing about knowledge. You can learn new things. You can keep learning. Right. right, right. <laughs> I love your message, Ed, and your work. Uh, yes. And, you know, it also surprised me that um, the medical community coming from that point of view of investigation, being scientists, mm-hmm. That's what they should be all about. I mean, what I think they, that's what has been said. The scientists are very open to always mm-hmm. uncovering or discovering or being questioned about anything that's not working, or even mm-hmm. if it is working. But um, when it comes to uh, modern medicine, it seems like it's there's more to it, right? As you mentioned, there's power involved, um, oh, right? Money. money, lots, yeah. And maybe that's why there's no room for questioning. They're not even open to question their own practice. And that's sad, isn't it? It's very sad because that's putting also a limit in the in the human imagination, as you said, the human life 
so you're not able to explore, go deeper into the nature of what you're working with. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, um, and also if you think about how doctors are trained, you know, it's it's very unhealthy. I mean, like they, I mean, you know, I've had various people refer to it as like it's like a boot camp or it's like a cult. You know that I mean, really, while while doctors are learning how to help other people, their own health is severely compromised. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I don't want to disrespect doctors. I mean, I feel like many of them have a deep vocation for healing. Yes. But the the structure, the institution, and the ways that they're trained discourages them. Ah, uh, yes. So they feel powerless in ways as well. Yeah. Uh, they're, yeah, they're working within a system that's um, limiting them. Exactly. Yeah. I interview a lot of doctors. There's one of uh-huh. them that caused my attention a lot, Dr. Matt Mumber. He's a poet, has written uh-huh. books, poetry, because he's an oncologist. He has seen uh-huh. a lot of people die. And uh-huh. it's beautiful the way it changed his perception of life, his mind. He shifted. Mm. He became a lot more, not religious, but spiritual. So he goes deep mm-hmm. into meditation. He hosts these uh, retreats for his patients. Uh-huh. And it's almost like this beautiful celebration of the creation of what this is called life. So he goes like beyond. I know he's limited when it comes to the hospital that he works in. But then he does that on the side. He writes books and uh, he has the retreats. So I really admire him for that kind of, oh, right? Stepping away from those limits. But he's still working within the lim- being limited when it comes well, to yeah. Yeah, the hospital. Well, I mean, and it's, and, and, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. I mean, these are things that can be helpful, you know, are, you know, you know, the, the part that I'm always like taken with is like, and yet, and, and I'm sure he knows all, you know, all oncologists know. And then there is something called spontaneous remissions from cancer where they don't, it's like suddenly, uh, but oncology, I mean, is a really important, you know, place to think about these things because, again, cancer is one of the things that medicine doesn't know. I mean, there isn't even such a thing as cancer. Cancer, it's like there are multiple kinds of metastatic conditions, right? And and it turns out that when they do autopsies of people who die of not, you know, non-cancerous causes, just, you know, people die of, you know, whatever. We all have tumors. You know, we all have, you know. Uh, but why some people develop, you know, metastatic, severe metastatic illnesses that impede our function, the function of our organism and why other people don't, that, that, that's not really knowable. And then for people who do, so, so Rachel Remen, who I was mentioning before, she also, she was the, is the co-founder of Commonweal, which is a comprehensive cancer care institute in Bolinas, California. And there's a Bill Moyer special on on them uh, called Healing in the Mind. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, and that is what Rachel's experience was like as a doctor. She was like, whoa, yeah. I, I see things and I don't have explanations. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah she went deeper. Um, into uh, very, she's Good. very deep. Uh, very, very deep. Yeah. I would love to have her here too. So thank you so much again, Ed, for this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> but I have to ask you, you know, we talked off record about Michel Foucault, the oh. philosopher. <laughs> so we have to end the conversation with him. Although I do have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. So talk to me about him and why 
he has influenced your work and your life so much? Uh, so, uh, so for people who don't know, oh, yes, right. <laughs> uh, Michel Foucault is probably one, if not the most significant, I'm going to call it thinkers of the 20th century. He died in 1984 of AIDS. Um, and uh, he was the uh, uh, chair, he had a chair at the Collège de France in, in Paris um, that was called the History of Systems of Thought. And, and he's the person that, that I first learned the idea of like, well, why do we accept certain things as being self-evident? And what happens if we begin to interrogate how they came to seem so self-evident? We often find out that they were actually invented at certain moments of history for certain very good reasons at the time. Um, but they're not necessary. They're not inevitable. And that if we, uh, if we consider how we came to think certain things are self-evident and we understand that in fact they weren't necessary, that it opens up a whole realm of possibility for other ways of being for, as he liked to say, thinking otherwise, um, that allow us to live otherwise. And in that way, he, I mean, he was a person, I mean, first of all, like, he was a genius and, you know, and, and he, uh, and as he said himself, he worked like a dog, like he was an incredible scholar, but, <clears throat> but his whole thing was, he said, the reason I do the work that I do is to change myself. He said, there is no point in writing a book. If I am the same person at the end of the book, as I was at the beginning of the book. Right. So, so he's been my, you know, my intellectual hero for, you know, 45 years or something, uh, precisely because his, his ethical, political, intellectual practice is just exemplary. Um, and he was also a very engaged political figure. He was very involved in, in different kinds of political movements. And also he was a gay man who, you know, wrote a brilliant, his, you know, most famous book is called the history of sexuality. Um, and, and it's about, well, why do we make these assumptions about what we think sex is mm -hmm. like, you know, very simply, he's like, sex is an idea. Yes. <laughs> so why, why, so, so why do we des so why do we desire an idea you know like how does it so and i mean in a lot of his work in the last 10 years of his life was an investigation of how that why that seems to make so much sense and that why so many of us imagine that knowing something about our sexuality will tell us something fundamentally true about who we are he's like hmm what if we thought about instead of like what we desire and, and, you know, our sexuality, what if we thought about bodies and pleasures? Like what if we thought about what is, what gives us pleasure and how can we have more pleasure? Right. Sex might be, you know, what we, you know, but, but there's all kinds of things that we can do that, you know, that might enhance 
our capacity to enjoy ourselves, to, to bring joy into the world. Yes. Not just one thing or another. It's so true. Yeah, the more I think about sexuality, sex and all that, uh, yeah, it has not been my, let's say, my goal for pleasure for some reason. <laughs> I'm not interested as much. I know I have a husband and I know we have to kind of uh, get um, more interested perhaps in that. But there, there's something about it that is, yeah. Right, right, right. I don't, have, I don't have to feel bad about it that um, I'm not engaged. Yeah, it is. It's so true when I hear that from you and I'm coming from him. It's just an idea. It's yeah. so, no, so it's, true. Yeah. And I love the way also he talks about working really hard, doing what he did to change himself. That's a beautiful message for all of us. Actually doing whatever we do with that intention, which I call spiritualizing life. Everything mm. we do, having this, uh, it's almost like this, not the intention. The intention's good, but it's beyond intention even. It's almost like it's flavored with truth that I want to get to the point, like in my case, to love deeper. That's what it is. Mm. In, in love has nothing to do to me when talking about sex. I don't think about sex when I think about love in my relationship with my husband. I think about mm. caring for him in every way, especially the way he thinks, like his mind and the way he perceives the world. In that way, if somehow he, he listens and we have a beautiful conversation like this one, and then, you know, and then he changes, he shifts. Who knows? Maybe he will also suffer less. In some ways mm. that I see him getting stressed out by, you know, uh -huh. small things. Exactly. So that's um, that's what drives me. It's really loving deeper. Mm. Even when I think about death, I know you mentioned earlier about oh, we're all going mm. to die. Ah, uh, yes, the body will die, but there's something about love that it really feels like something that, you know, I know it sounds very philosophical, but it feels eternal. Like that cannot mm. die. If we came here, we embodied like as we are now, and then we, uh, we were able to love deeper enough to the point of seeing, of holding everything sacred, then I think that it would make this experience uh, called life so much more fun, really. Mm. That's what it is, joyful fun. <laughs> That's, mm -hmm. When I think about love, I think about fun too. <laughs> they go hand in hand. Uh -huh. <laughs> so we all can have fun together, no judgments, and we just kind of hug and talk about anything without any <laughs> concerns or defensiveness. <laughs> so that's fun. That's really fun. No, so absolutely. Maybe. Well, one of my favorite uh, teachings, that, one of my favorite sayings that one of my teachers, Susan Harper, says, which I just think is brilliant. She said, look, death will come for us all at, at some point or another. The thing is, when it comes for you, make sure you are as alive mm -hmm. as possibly. <laughs> yes. And I was just like, the first time I heard that, I thought that is genius. Yes. I mean, like, yes. you know, what, what, what a better, you know, plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You see, that's it. And then how can we kind of learn to almost like reflect upon death every day, every moment? What mm. about if I just die in about two hours, you know? And then that would be a beautiful kind of reflection to have or contemplation about how alive mm -hmm. can I be, you know, in the two yeah. hours from now? Can I keep this aliveness going? And then exactly. how do we do that? For me, it has been love, cultivating love. Uh -huh. But we all have different ways of getting exactly. there. But it, that's so beautiful. I love philosophy because there's so much truth behind it. There's that... 
the possibility of changing the way we think and that perceiving reality. And that, um, yeah, there's nothing more exciting than that, <laughs> fun than that too, to change the way we think, kind of shift. So we're almost at the end now. And, and I know I've been talking for a while <laughs> about the end. I almost don't want to end. But before we say goodbye for today, Ed, would you like to read a passage in your book or make any more comments, say anything that you left unsaid? Um, so I'm going to forego reading since we've gone on for a long time. <laughs> oh, <my. Yeah. laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. But uh, I just, yeah, I just wanted to thank you um, and, you know, and uh, to say, you know, I really, I, I do think, you know, we all have the capacity to heal in very profound ways, you know, in the sense of that we all have the capacity to enhance the quality of our lives in whatever conditions that we're living. But, but it requires support and encouragement. And as you're saying, it requires love. It requires uh, care, you know, that we need others, you know, to, uh, to hold the space for us, you know, to become more of who we are at every moment. Because who we are is always already connected, entangled, involved with others. And so, you know, so I just, you know, want to, you know, encourage people to like consider the possibility that mm, healing, healing might be a desire or something. Healing might be a, a value. And then if I ask myself that question, it's like, what do I need to learn? Um, and, you know, so that's how I work with people, you know, in various places in their lives. Um, and uh, yeah, and I would be happy, you know, to talk to people you know, in my, my counseling practice, if people are more interested, it's called healingcouncil.com. Um, and my book is called On Learning to Heal or What Medicine Doesn't Know. Mm, yes. Thank you so much again, Ed, for oh, your presence you. and it's your so wisdom. Wonderful. Oh, my God. And I'll have the links of your book linked to Amazon and also your website, of course, on your podcast profile. Thank, Thank you. you again for your presence. And we'll talk soon. Bye for now, Ed. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn more about Ed Cohen and his work, please visit HealingCouncil.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.